Welcome to the Volusi Podcast. A study in monology. This is your grumpy uncle Peter. He will say words at you. Oh no! You've been dirty and caught syphilis. And of course, because you have syphilis, you're now too embarrassed to go to the doctor and say, I was dirty and got syphilis. Uh, But luckily, there's a solution. There's a self-medication technique you can use to get rid of the syphilis. And that is to catch malaria. Malaria causes an intense fever. It heats up your body so much, it actually will kill the syphilis in your body. So there you go. You catch syphilis, you've been a dirty, dirty boy, you can now get rid of it, just go somewhere and catch a little malaria, that's taken care of. Oh no! Now you have malaria! Well, luckily for you, there is again another solution that doesn't require you to go to the doctor and say, I caught malaria on purpose to get rid of the syphilis I'd caught earlier that I was too embarrassed to come talk to you about. You don't want that in your medical history. What you do is take Viagra. Now, it's a bit complicated, but basically, malaria attacks weaker cells, and the Viagra sort of stiffens up the membranes of the cells. I know that sounds ridiculous, but that is actually what it does. And it helps kill off the malaria. The malaria is less effective at attacking your body. So Viagra, while not 100% a cure, certainly will speed along the process of getting malaria, certainly reduce symptoms, and help you get over it faster. So now you don't have malaria anymore. But you do have a raging erection if you're a man. I'm sorry this is a bit male-centric, but that's actually the only way the whole joke works. So I'm going to keep going. If you take Viagra, you now are rock hard. But now it's time to go out and visit whoever you dealt with in the first place that you caught syphilis from. And you now can start the cycle all over again. Where you catch a little syphilis, cure it with malaria, cure that with Viagra, and then you're ready to go out and catch more syphilis. There is a reason I have never been hired to do a PSA. Okay, so there are now two or three sort of standard questions on Quora, and I'm thinking of passing them over, but it's just they come up so often, it actually makes me think that uh, it's like a lot of people have these questions, but then at the same time, I feel like a lot of people are trolling. There's questions about Japan and foreigners, and there's questions about Canada being a weak or shitty place to live. So this week, I'm going to do sort of a summary of both. The first question was, do foreigners feel excluded in Japan? How is it like for a foreigner living in Japan? Um, the question itself was, eh, not so exciting. It was actually probably a legitimate question. I think people, the person who was writing it was being sincere. The interesting thing was the response. The most popular response on Quora is the response that comes up when it shows up in my little email box. Um, the response is, you are excluded and discrimination against foreigners is amazing. So this is a user responding to this. I'm from Australia and let me tell you, if the shit that happens over here happened in Australia, it would be all over the news and the guy who did it would have lost his job. I could list hundreds of things. But let's start with the basic. I could not get a credit card. 
I have a 4 million yen a year income. 4 million yen, for anyone who doesn't know, is approximately the average income in Japan. So the, I think the average person makes between 4 to 5 million yen a year. That's really normal. So this guy can't get a credit card. But his wife, with a, sal with a salary of less than 2 million yen, could get a credit card. If you want to use a cheaper cell phone company, you must use a credit card. The only option is you go to a place like SoftBank or Docomo. These are two of the biggest cell phone service providers in Japan. If you get audited for the tax office, you will get accused of teaching English privately and not declaring your income. This is interesting because he claims he's not an English teacher. He runs a business selling models. Now, I'm assuming selling models means not human beings. That actually needs to be clarified. I, I'm guessing uh, models like maybe Gundam and he sells them back to Australia or something like that. The rest of the post, which is quite long, is actually talking about this man's divorce and his attempts to get his child to get custody over his children. Now, he is right that child custody is almost always default given to the mother in Japan, especially in international relationships. The thing is, what I found most interesting about the series of responses that this gentleman posted actually demonstrated that he has a series of problems over almost every aspect of his life. And I have a theory that if you have a problem with every interaction or most of the interactions in your life, you're the problem. I think I've actually spoken about this before. There is a phrase that while slightly crass, I do find very appropriate and appealing, which is if you smell shit everywhere you go, you should check your shoes. The implication there is if something goes wrong or everything's horrible everywhere you go, you may be the problem. It may be something that you need to fix. My response to this, do foreigners feel excluded in Japan, is actually, in general, no. Yes, it happens because you're living in a very different culture. You feel very foreign. Uh, when I came to Japan, I didn't really speak any Japanese. My Japanese now, despite how long I've lived here, is just mediocre. I wouldn't even claim to have good Japanese skills. But I haven't felt excluded for the most part. I've lived in a bunch of countries, and honestly, in most of the countries I've lived in, I did not feel alien or different after the initial sort of culture shock was adjusted to. So when I lived in Korea, very quickly after I moved to Korea, I felt very welcomed in Korea. I moved to Japan and I immediately set about trying to find a judo club and integrate myself into Japanese society in some way. And I felt very welcomed. I did have a story long, long time ago that I posted about when I tried to find my first judo club and I actually chalked it up to racism when they wouldn't take me. But then later sort of in retrospect, I realized that they just didn't want to deal with the problem of having a foreigner who didn't speak Japanese in their club. Because let's face it, all these guys are volunteers. They didn't sign up to actually take care of me. But then when I found a club that did take care of me, they took care of me so well, I never felt like I was not part of that group. And that helped me, I think, adjust to dealing or meeting with people and integrating with Japanese society in general. So I think the person who answers the question is actually should be the focus. If you say you feel excluded from society, I would take a look at your efforts to integrate into society. If you feel included in society, I would say take a look at the difference of those efforts and see what happens and see how they compare. Because my experience overall, yes, I've had frustrations, but I had frustrations when I lived in Canada. Yes, at times I felt excluded, but I felt excluded sometimes when I was back in Canada. I would not say the difference is significant enough to chalk it up to culture. I think the source 
of the inclusion or exclusion when you live in a different country has a lot more to do with the individual than society at large. And since this person has literally hundreds of complaints, I would say the common factor in all those complaints is the person, not the society they live in. The second question that comes up all the time is always just dishing on Canada. And I, maybe they stick out because I'm always feeling maybe slightly defensive for Canada's sake, or I see them as being unreasonable. This was a really interesting phrasing more than anything else. So the question is, after visiting Canada for the first time, I was rather disgusted by how mild and weak the average person there was. How would Canada manage to protect itself should the U.S. cease to act as its shield? There is so much to unpack there. So he is disgusted by the average person being meek and mild in Canada. I have visited America. I've never lived there. I didn't find American people to be particularly different than Canadians when it came to their overall atmosphere and attitude. I just didn't see a difference. There are differences, of course, between the cultures of America and Canada, but I would say for the most part, those differences are particularly subtle. Now, I have not been to a lot of places in America, so my sample size is quite small, but I have not found my American compatriots to be particularly different. I've had them certainly... They have some different ideas about the world and philosophy and more, most clearly, politics and how things should be run. Because, again, we grew up in different systems, so we think, see things in different ways. We have different base values. But it's never been so much that I have been like, oh my God, what a crazy different human being this person is. My first instinct when I read this question, again, because of the phrasing, was that they're just trolling. But then my second question is, if they're dead serious... If they really are disgusted by the mild and weak average Canadian person, what the hell place do they come from? I mean, what society do they live in where the attitude and atmosphere of the average Canadian would be so different from them? And then how does the average person in the street equate to the military? Because America does not protect Canada in any significant way. I think what actually protects Canada more than anything else is the fact that we're surrounded by two big oceans, just like America. It would be very hard for a country to invade both Canada and America because you'd have to get over a pretty big ocean to get there to do your invasion. So that's the first problem. And if you're going to start shooting missiles at Canada, well, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but America is the bigger target, not Canada. And people just straight up don't dislike Canada as much as America. And I don't think that's because, again, of difference in culture or anything. I think that America just has a bigger profile in the world. People know America. People know America's policies and ideas. People care about America more. So it's not that America is shielding Canada. It's just America has a bigger presence in the world. And so people just know America more. I have, again, talked a couple times about countries invading Canada and it's an interesting question because because the basic thing is there would be almost no benefit to invading Canada because certainly once you invaded it it would be incredibly difficult to hold again just like America because the country is just so damn big what I really want is maybe is to actually reach out to the question asker and ask what behavior specifically disgusted him. How were they so mild and weak compared to the average American that they know in the place that they come from? I actually want to know where they come from so I can look into that place and see if it is significantly different. 
And actually, I kind of want to visit there and just see, is this real? So I've never gone so far as to try to contact the question asker, but I may actually start doing that to see how far we can take this. I recently had a suit made and it's because I'm big by Japanese standards. I'm not particularly large. I'm about six feet tall. I have big shoulders, uh, but I mean, at no point would you go, oh my God, what a freak. Certainly, I actually have a lot of friends who are much, much bigger than me. So to get a suit made, I had to go to a bunch of tailors because I can't buy clothes off the rack. Again, not particularly big, but when I went to tailors, I found out that most tailors in Japan don't make the suits from scratch. They're not bespoke suits. They have a pattern that's cut out and they cut it down to your size. Now, in my conversations with other people, they seem to look down on that, where it's actually a really sensible, efficient system to have a machine cut out a pattern and then you just alter each suit to each individual. That is just as much tailoring as someone cutting out the suit, but their biggest size wouldn't fit me. When I put the jacket on that we tried and I buttoned it up, the lapels would kind of pop out when I pulled my shoulders back, and that doesn't look very good. The owners of the shops were really, really helpful. They would recommend other places I could try. They were very honest about how the suits were made. And it took me about five, six tries in five or six different places before I actually found a place that made the suit from scratch that they could make a suit that would fit me. So I admittedly know very, very little about suits. Every time they talked about some aspect of the suit, would you like A or B? My first question was, what is the functionality of it? So some of the things that don't serve a purpose, they're stitching along the lapels, and that's a personal preference for fashion. But I was, of course, more interested in the things that actually served a purpose, served a function. So there's a slit in the back of the jacket. You can get a flap or you can get a slit. And apparently, if you have a big butt, the slit's better because if you sit down, the jacket will get less wrinkly. So while the actual presentation of the back of the jacket is up to you, preference-wise, it does actually serve sort of a function if you have a butt that sticks out. Now, I have a very luscious, very scrumptious buttock area, so I thought that the slit that would get less wrinkly would be a preferable choice. The lining of the jacket, you can get the full jacket covered with silk, or you can get half, so sort of the upper part is covered and the bottom part isn't. Again, that actually serves a purpose. If the whole thing is covered in silk, the jacket will retain more heat. So you'll actually be warmer if you get full silk. I chose half silk because I'm actually always hot and it's harder for me to wear a jacket if I'm hot all the time. So I would be more comfortable overall if I had half silk and it would breathe more and let more heat out of the jacket. Those were the two main takeaways from that experience. I really learned a lot about suits and suit making and I was really happy with the experience. Knowing nothing about suits, really, other than like it's a suit and I put it on, I was really happy to have someone who was an expert not talk down to me. He treated me really, really well. And that to me was the primary appeal of this experience. I absolutely would recommend the place again. I would go back there. It's called Kashiyama if you're ever in Japan, the smart tailor. The store itself was quite intimidating. Part of me thinks I've told all this before, but maybe I just talked about it so much with my friends. It sounds, I feel like I'm repeating myself. So if I've actually said all this before, I apologize because I now have gotten through so many topics and quite often what I do when I talk to my friends is I talk about a topic and that's not workshopping the idea, but it's clearly the idea is being refined in my head. So now I feel like I've actually recorded this, which I don't believe I have. But the two things I want to talk about next are things I have learned about suits 
previous to this experience. Now, the first one is the buttons along the cuff of the jacket. They serve no practical purpose. They're there just to look good. But there's a really interesting story about how they came about. Pre-Napoleon, there were no buttons on the sleeve of a jacket. It was just a jacket. It was sewn up and off you went. No, no big deal. During long marches, soldiers when they would march in cold weather, would get runny noses. And they would sniff, but more often than not, they would wipe their hand across their face and wipe their nose that way. Because they're marching, they're busy, their nose runs, they go... And they would wipe their nose with their jacket sleeve. Napoleon didn't like that. Because what he was seeing was soldiers, soldiers in uniform, with big streaks of snot down the front of their coat sleeve. So Napoleon demanded that his uniform include buttons on the top of the sleeve close to the cuff. So then if you wipe your nose with your sleeve, it'll run a bunch of buttons across your nose and really hurt. Thus making it impossible for soldiers to walk around with streaks of snot on the sleeve of their coat. I suppose they could do an awkward uh, underwipe or something else, but that would actually be more effort than taking out a handkerchief and blowing your nose or something like that. So because Napoleon didn't like snot on the sleeves of his soldiers' jackets, buttons were added to jackets. That became fashionable. So people were adding buttons to the to that area of civilian jackets after that. And after a while, it rotated to the bottom where the cuff is. So the cuff of your shirt actually has a button and it kind of matches up nicely if the buttons on the jacket are in the same area. So that is why they started on the top and actually rotated to the bottom. So something else I knew you did with suits was you never button the bottom button of the vest or the jacket of the suit. There are two different reasons why you don't button the bottom button of your jacket and your vest. But both come from King Edward II. He was the ruler from 1901 to 1910. He was the Prince of Wales when he kind of influenced fashion in this way. For the vest, you don't button the bottom button because King Edward VII was very fat. He found that buttoning the bottom button was uncomfortable and it became popular in court to copy the Prince of Wales. So because he didn't button his bottom button, no one else did. And then they started cutting the vest so that it sat more naturally with the bottom button unbuttoned. So it makes the waistcoat look better. So now because this fat man was unbuttoning the bottom button to make it fit better, they started actually cutting the vest so it looks better with the bottom button unbuttoned. Then, because of course all these nobles were doing it, regular people started copying it as well and it became a common fashion. The coat also doesn't have the bottom button buttoned, but it's for a different reason. But it is still Edward VII who did it first. When you ride a horse, the jacket sits more naturally if the bottom button isn't buttoned because the bottom button starts goes around or close to your waist. So if you're sitting on a horse, it has to be open for the jacket to sit nicely. Those were riding jackets. But as regular suit jackets became more popular, that tradition was maintained. You don't button the bottom button as King Edward VII didn't because he rode a horse a lot and he would wear regular jackets while sitting on a horse. So he kept that bottom button unbuttoned all the time. Now the jackets are actually cut that way with the intent that you will never button the bottom button and they are designed to look better that way. But the two sources are one person but for two different reasons which was a really neat piece of research and quite fascinating. So if you wear a suit, don't button the bottom button of your vest or your jacket. Should anyone ever talk to you about it, you can actually explain why. For the vest, King Edward VII was too fat. For the jacket, King Edward VII wanted to look good while riding a horse. 
loss of the 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 loss of podcast. The loss of podcast. Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments, you can tweet at VelociPeter or email VelociPodcast at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast or go to VelociPeter.com slash podcast. You don't bottom the button, bottom button unbuttoned.